In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Friday in some places. It looks like we made it. I hope everybody's having a beautiful evening, a beautiful day. I hope that you got to wake up in the arms of the person you love the most. I hope you realize a little, little miracle just waiting to happen to you as soon as you walk out that door. I got a great miracle for you in store today. The world of cannabis is knocking on my door. I have an incredible guest here. We're going to get into it. I want everyone to help me welcome and understand that it is my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Andy Mansfeld. He's a dynamic entrepreneur, a visionary leader at the forefront of healthcare innovation with a rich background as a physician. Dr. Andy's journey has been nothing short of remarkable. Having spent numerous years providing direct care to patients, he embarked on a transformative path into the business realm of medicine. Leveraging his expertise in consulting and sales to drive meaningful change. Meaningful, ladies and gentlemen. I want to underscore that word. However, Dr. Andy's thirst for exploration and passion for discovery led him on a captivating detour to Vietnam, where he immersed himself in the vibrant craft beer scene, which we're going to talk about that a little bit, I hope, and uh, expanding his horizons and embracing new opportunities. Now, back in Europe, Dr. Andy has redirected his focus to a groundbreaking frontier medical cannabis. With a deep commitment to improving patient care and well-being, he is dedicated to harnessing the therapeutic potential of this remarkable plant. Working tirelessly to ensure its benefits reach those in need, please join me in welcoming the innovative Dr. Andy, a true pioneer in the intersection of medicine, entrepreneurship, and compassion. Thank you for being here today. Dr. Andy, how are you? I'm doing great, George. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. It's a uh, it is indeed interesting times we live in. And, you know, I gave you a, a little bit of a, I, I just, I just highlighted a few spots in your background. You have such a diverse background and you a wealth of knowledge in different areas, not only in different areas of expertise, but like different parts of the world, man. And I was kind of wondering if you could open up that background a little bit more, like who were you before you 
are the guy that you are today in, in working on medical cannabis? And what kind of really, was there something that really got you going for this or how did it come about? Um, well, I, I think I've always um, been a proponent of legalization of cannabis and, and marijuana um, just from a kind of a ethical background or a point of view, because I've never understood why um, this plant was being demonized while people are drinking. And back in the day, a lot more drinking and driving, um, you know, and people are smoking cigarettes, but cannabis was not allowed, which never seemed to be uh, quite as evil as, as the government made it out to be. Um, you know, so that's going back a long ways. But then when I was a physician in, in Colorado, I was in Colorado and when um, the legalization happened there, um, and you started getting more and more information about how it definitely helps with chronic pain. So just from that point of view, it made sense, you know, and then, you know, we've seen a lot of other benefits, but that was always clear that it helped with chronic pain. So it never made sense why uh, it was being you know, demonized all over the place. Yeah, it's an interesting relationship. The word medicine has, right? Like, you know, how do, how do you define medicine? When I say the word medicine, how do you define that? Oh, wow. Good question. I mean, <laughs> in the end, it's anything that potentially helps someone. It doesn't necessarily have to heal. I mean, mm -hmm. other doctors might not like that answer, but I mean, you know, going back uh, thousands of years, people were using plants originally, obviously, because that's all they had. That and, um, you know, and prayer or whatever the shamans and medicine people back then uh, were calling it. Um but originally it was using plants and different substances that, that, that were found in nature, you know? Um, but, you know, modern medical studies, you know, you look at does a medication work or not, a pill work, and then you have the placebo effect, but does a placebo okay, right. effect not still have an effect? And, and it does, you know, it doesn't mean that you can run around selling sugar pills and hope right. for some placebo effect. But um, if, someone is benefited by a placebo effect, they're still getting a benefit, you know? So it's hard in the end to define, I think medicine um, or medication as specifically something you can test in a test tube necessarily. Although cannabis THC can be proven to have certain benefits even in a, in a test tube or in a laboratory, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it brings into question this idea of medicine and both of us are big fans of plant medicine but in the western world it seems to me especially with being on the heels of COVID, like we see illness as contagious and when i start thinking about cannabis starting in colorado or starting being being decriminalized i know people hate that word decriminalized but you know legalized whatever you want to say it almost seems to me like wellness can be contagious. And you start looking at these studies. Now more studies come out. It's almost like it gains momentum. What's your take on that? Like, it is it, what, what's the take on wellness being contagious? Is that too crazy? No, I mean, I think, I think it's a very good point. I mean, um, not just things like cannabis or, you know, now psychedelics are becoming yeah. uh, in vogue and being researched yep. for mental health things. Um, but if you look at also, you know, fitness, um, dieting, all these different things that are all what also wellness and health related. 
they also have kind of their contagiousness, you know, um, yeah. if you grow up in an area uh, of the world where everyone walks everywhere and bikes everywhere, then that's what you grow up knowing. And that's what you do. If you grow up in an area where you eat a lot of fast food and, and don't exercise much and sit in front of your computer gaming all day, and that's what all the people around you do, that's what you do. Uh, doesn't make yep. you a bad person, but it's just what you know and what you've been exposed yep. to. And that's contagiousness, just like you described it. So I think certainly wellness and any behaviors uh, yeah. can, can be considered contagious, sure. Or even moods, you know, if you walk in a room and you're in a bad mood, and everyone else is in a good mood. It can go one way or the other. Either you get in a good mood or they get in a bad mood. But, you know, I mean, yeah. moods are definitely contagious. So. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about. It makes me think of, you know, if you throw a cold glass of water into a swimming pool, it doesn't take long before that cold water becomes the same temperature as the water in the swimming pool, right? Right. <laughs> this is a pretty interesting one. I think that this is also sort of a bridge towards stigma. You know, on some level, I remember being a young kid and being like, oh, I'm going to smoke this joint and go over here, but I'd be super nervous because society looked down on it, you know, and there's, there's gotta be, I don't know if there's any tests on it, but there, there has to be some sort of effect in the individual when society looks down upon something, even if it's good for you, right? Like, I don't really hear that, that talked about too much. What's your take on that? Um, well, certainly, you know, the people who are using cannabis from a medical point of view are lumped in with the people who are using it recreationally. Um, and I'm not saying anything wrong about the people who are using it recreationally, but you know, that's where the stigma originally came from. Yeah. And um, or not necessarily there, I guess it came from the um, reefer madness. Yeah. The reefer madness <laughs> government propaganda, <laughs> which turned out it was all racist BS you know, way yeah. back in the day. But, yeah. Um, you know, the stigma comes from the recreational side more than the medical side, but if someone is using it to help their chronic pain or, their, or whatever other issues, you know, they, the public still looks at that person the same way because they don't know. It's not like yeah. someone walking around with a sign saying, I'm using this for blah, 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 uh, you know, uh, disease state. So um, certainly I think that affects people's First of all, their ability to try it as a medication, yeah, uh, and then certainly their ability to use it in an open manner. Um, I mean, that being said, you know, if someone's using edibles or um, tinctures or something, that's a lot more easy to take in public than if you're vaping or, or smoking. Uh, so, you know, the the method of delivery also makes a difference there in how people look at you because they don't notice it. They don't notice. Um, yeah. So, I mean, certainly stigma is a big problem. Um, but you also see there's a lot of reports. If you look at the acceptance in the U.S. and then spreading around the world, you know, once you have medical uh, cannabis, medical marijuana in a place for a few years, the number of people who accept it goes up dramatically. Um, and now in the U.S., the majority of people in the U.S., uh, both conservatives and liberals are in favor of medical cannabis. Um and you're starting to see big trends like that across Europe and a lot of other countries too in the world, South America and uh, in particular also. So you're really seeing that trend, which as people accept it, the stigma goes down, although it doesn't disappear because someone can say, yes, I agree with medical cannabis, 
but when they see someone on the street smoking a joint, they're still going to give them the side eye, you know? So it's, there's still a ways to go, but it's heading in the right direction, I would say. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, as, as someone who has spent time on both sides of the pond, is is what's going on in Europe over there? I don't know. I, I pay attention a little bit over there, and I talk to people like Sebastian Marincolo, and, you know, maybe uh, before I move on any further, let me just give a shout-out to Mark Davis. Mark Davis is an – for people watching this show, if you don't know who Mark Davis is, you should Google him because if you're in the world of cannabis and you don't know who Mark Davis is, you got a problem because Mark Davis can help you find the person that you need to be next to. Shout out to Mark Davis. Mark, thank you for everything. You're an amazing human being. So Andy, as someone who's been on both sides of the pond and you, you've seen the trends, you've been over in Denver, you see what's going on, you, you have a relationship with, with medical cannabis, and now you're in Europe. What is it like over there? Is it the same rules, the different rules, or different stigmas? Is it a different relationship? Maybe you can fill my, my audience in on what's What's it like over there with cannabis, medical cannabis? Yeah, um, I mean, it's in some ways it's very similar to the U.S. because uh, you know in Europe you have a lot of different countries; they all make their own laws, uh, but they're all under the most of the countries are under the EU, which has its own overriding laws. Uh, so it's similar to the U.S. where you have all the states with their own laws and regulations, and the federal government. So um, you know, different countries here are starting to pass different laws. Almost every country, most countries in Europe have medical cannabis. Uh, some it's more accessible than others. Some have laws saying medical cannabis is allowed, but it's impossible to access it. Uh, but Germany's had medical cannabis since 2017, and it's the biggest medical cannabis market in Europe. Um, so that has, I think, also led to the drive here in Germany to have full legalization, uh, which actually they're uh, supposed to be voting in the law today for what's called the first pillar, where they're going to be allowing then um, home grows and cannabis, cannabis social clubs, similar to what they have in Spain and Barcelona. Um, but it won't, won't be like a regulated adult use recreational market yet, but that's supposed to come at a later state or stage. But so it's very similar to the U.S. You have all these different countries. They all have different rules. It's very confusing for people can't transport from one country to the other, but some countries you can grow in and export to other countries. For instance, a lot of growing is happening in Port Portugal and they can export to Germany for medical and research purposes, but not for recreational purposes. Um, and the, the restriction on that commerce or that transport of recreational cannabis between countries is governed by EU and UN rules or laws. Mm. So that's almost akin to the federal situation in the U.S., where federal government says you can't you can't have interstate commerce of cannabis because it's illegal on the federal level. Same here in Europe because of the EU and UN rules, you can't sell or you can't. It's not about selling. You can't even transport cannabis for recreational purposes. Um, so the countries are trying to work within all these frameworks and doing their own things within their borders. Um, Yes, yeah, so that's very similar to the U.S. It's a yeah. confusing patchwork of different rules and regulations uh, that is difficult to keep track of. Yeah, man, it, it just sounds to me like there's a room full of heavyweights that are like, um, I get this cut, you get that cut. No, 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 no. I get this cut, you get that cut. No, 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 no. We're going to centralize this bad boy. And, you know, it just 
it sounds to me like people are arguing about who's going to get paid and not really caring about the true benefits of what it can do to help people on some level, man. Wait, you, you have you have had an interesting career and you have seen a lot of changes in cannabis. And I'm curious if you can maybe speak to some of the the ideas that have changed in your mind about cannabis. Um, well, I think one of the biggest is um, from a medical point of view, you know, I mentioned chronic pain earlier, yeah. and I always saw that as an obvious area where medical cannabis can be helpful. Um, yep. Wasn't clear to me because we didn't have the studies how beneficial it would be, but now we're seeing that a lot of people uh, are able to uh, stop using opiates completely. Mm. You know, when they're on massive doses, they're able to stop using opiates completely, able to function much better because they're not as um, knocked out. Opiates mm -hmm. knock people out much worse than cannabis does. Um, so, you know, seeing that and seeing the studies that prove that you can you can really treat pain very well with cannabis, even cannabis alone yeah. was was quite amazing to see. But now you're seeing that it's helpful in many other areas that, you know, seizures, especially in children that are not controlled by other medications. That's you know something that we've seen movies and heard a lot of stories about. But there's a lot of evidence coming out about that also. Yeah. Um, but the one that actually has surprised me is how helpful it is in mental health. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of studies coming out that, is, that it is beneficial in mental health. Um, my concern was that it might even be detrimental to people with mental health issues. Um, but, you know, without studies, you never know, you know. Um, and so luckily, over the last years, you've had a lot more, a lot more medical research coming out, which is really starting to show what it can and can't do. Um, you know, and that was one of the big problems with the, the yeah. prohibition was that you couldn't do any research. Um, and then you had big pharma who was also pushing, <clears throat> don't, don't legalize it because we're going to lose money. Yeah. Uh, don't fund research because we're going to lose money. Um, you know, like you said, not trying to help the people, just trying to watch their, their pocketbook. Um, but now, you know, there's thousands and thousands of studies coming out, um, in the last few years that, that are just focused on cannabis and what it can and can't do. Yeah. You know, I too am blown away by the way in which plant medicine is able to help people with mental health problems. You know, if you're like me, you have a copy of the DSM and you'll flip through it sometimes and be like, this is all bullshit. You know what I mean? You start looking through there and you're like, I'm like, this is, this is all hypothetical, man. And, and you know, a, a big dose of psychedelics or even cannabis at the right time, at the right dosage, it really changes your perspective on things. And, and for someone who has gone through bouts of depression at times or, you know, face some mania here and there, it seems to me that plant medicine gives you a different perspective. And it's with that different perspective that you can maybe understand why you're in constant pain. Like, you know what? You know what this constant pain is? It's this unwillingness to confront this problem in my life that I've had since I was five. And it's now manifesting in ways that are physical, you know? Right. And so it's, it's, it's connected on some level like that. And I, I really think that that is a giant step forward for medicine to thoroughly understand or begin to understand 
the mind body connection and pain and suffering and all these things. And I think cannabis goes a long way in helping people figure that kind of stuff out. Do you think that that's a big part of the, of the mental wellness effects that cannabis can have on people? You know, I'm not sure about cannabis. Um, I mean, like, like I said, I mean, I believe that, you know, the studies are showing it's definitely helpful for, right. for mental health, uh, different mental health issues. Um, I'm not sure how cannabis plays into those. Um, okay. I, mean, I think for anxiety and some things mm. like that, it's a little bit more obvious, but others, I'm not sure. Um, I think the psychedelics are, are, to me, make a little bit more sense in, in the form of um, like for PTSD and major depression, that's uh, refractory to treatment and, and all these different things. They talk about it being kind of a reset that psychedelics yeah medicines give some kind of a reset for the brain. I think that goes to what you were saying, kind of opens up um, the, the person's brain to see things in a different light and reach in, reach to areas, whether it be past traumas or whatever it may be, but it, it kind of opens up their, their brain a little bit, their mind a little bit to see different things or to be able to um, understand different things or access different things. I think that's where the psychedelics really or seeming to, to work on those, those really difficult problems. Um, I don't know if cannabis works in the same way though. You know, I, I, I just don't know. I don't, I'm not sure what the mechanism there is. Yeah. It would be interesting to see, cause I know when you, when you ingest cannabis, it forms a different molecule than the, I, I don't know enough to quote you exactly what's happening when it gets broken down in the liver, but I think it's a different type of cannabinoid that happened. There's something different that happens when you ingest it versus when you smoke it. And I think that it's more psychedelic when you, when you take it in and you eat it on some level. It would be an interesting study to see the way in which THC, the terpenes, affect the default mode network in the brain. Like, Is it, is it doing something similar to psychedelics? You could put up the, you know, the, bio, the, the neural feedback and probably at least get a map and, and kind of see that stuff. Are, are you aware of any kind of studies that have been happening with, with cannabis and, and – and, um, like neural feedback or any, any studies in that area? I'm not aware of any. I'm sure there's some research yeah. going on there, but I mean, I'm not aware of them. But I think the big part of the problem also is we don't really understand everything that's happening, whether yeah. it be with psychedelics, but I think more so with cannabis because of all the terpenes and alkaloids and all these other things that are hap that are in the, in the plant and, you know, which are leading to the entourage effect, which is yeah. real, but we there's so many different combinations. There's millions of different types of combinations where, you know, you've got dozens and dozens of terpenes and alkaloids and all these different things that are in different levels. And at one level will have this effect at a different level, a different one, and how they interact with the other compounds. It's so complex that, um, I mean, I think in the end, maybe supercomputers and AI will help us maybe figure some of it out. But I think it's the different, number of permutations of things combining and affecting each other are too, too large for our human brains to be able to comprehend, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, we know some basics about these terpenes will have these general effects and these have these general effects kind of things. But what if one's in a high uh, dose and one's also in a high dose, maybe they interact then differently, you know, and, and we see that with certain compounds, at a high dose, it causes anxiety. At a low dose, it causes euphoria and different things like that. So it's just so complex that 
I, I don't know how we can figure that out, literally. Isn't that the whole problem with medicine? Like, I mean, if you can't measure all the variables, how the hell are you supposed to get the answer? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Bandwidth is the problem. You know, that's, that yeah. is one of the problems. You know, um, med and medicine has tried to, or government has tried to say, well, you can only leave, at first, they're like, you can take THC, either make it by extraction and uh, distill it down to where it's only THC or create a fake THC and that you can sell, but you can't <laughs> sell the real original version, which comes from the plant with the terpenes and everything else combined. And then it didn't work as well. Yeah. Um, and it comes from medicine wanting to be precise, but you know, if, if the end effect is not as useful, then it's not really useful. Um, just because that way we can control it better. I mean, that doesn't make sense yeah. either. Yeah, it's, I was speaking um, not too long ago with Professor Erica Dick in Canada, and we, she was telling me about, you know, they, it seems like there was a previous wave of psychedelics in the late 50s and in cannabis as well, in the late 50s, moving into the 60s, where things were still kind of put up in this medical container. And she was speaking about some of the doctors that were doing some studies. And, and she had mentioned to me that some of the questionnaires were much, they, they were, they were a lot more willing to look at subjective effects. And one of the questions that they would ask the people that were going through treatment on psychedelics, what they would ask the family, particularly the wives, like, is your husband less of an asshole? And it seems to me like that particular type of questioning is, kind of moved out of the way for being imprecise or, but I, the, the subjective ideas I think are measurable, whether it's the tears of the people that love you, seeing you getting better, you know, or the relationships that you, that someone could honestly say like, wow, this person is really opening up or my kid's talking to me again, you know, like those are real effects. I mean, I, I'm hopeful. Do, do you think that that's something that or is that being looked at again? Or is that something that we could help inject back into the system to help maybe move the ball forward? Or what's your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think I think traditional medicine has already been looking at things like at good. You know, it's called quality of life and quality of life measurements. Nice. You know, and, and they for a long time that was missing, but it, it but I mean it's been being looked at more and more uh, over the last couple of decades for sure. Um, and yeah, it's just a common phrase is quality of life, but um, it's, it is hard to measure those things. And that's where research studies, medical studies have always struggled. How do you measure subjective things to try and get numbers and figures and data that you can actually use, especially from one study to the next? You know, if you just, if everyone says, I feel better. Well, what does that mean? You know, um, another good example is pain. You know, how do you measure pain? Um, and that's always been, been a conundrum for, for, researchers because people say, well, it hurts less. You know, <laughs> one to 10, and still people don't know. Until you've been at a 10, a four feels like a 10 if you've never been above a four, you know? So um, it's, that's the problem with the quality of life stuff. It's hard to measure, you know? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, does it seem to you that we are in a crisis of mental health? Like when I, when I, 
I spend a lot of time in the, in this field, talking to different experts and different coaches and people with PTSD and some veterans groups. And I keep hearing this word, like we're in, a, in an epidemic of mental health. What's your take on that? No, I'd say definitely we have been for, for probably 40, 50 years at least. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, before then I think it was, um, just shut up and suck it up and yep. don't say anything. Uh, and that went for that counted for both men and women. And you were taught it as a child, you know, yep. um, I think, especially in the U S but you also see it here in Europe, but, but not to the same extent as in the U S a large part of that epidemic of mental health crisis comes from the fact that it's not, not being treated or paid for by the government or by healthcare systems uh, or even by insurance companies in the U S. Mm. You know? So, um, you know, people are finally um, allowed to, uh, in a healthy, or allowed to express that they have mental health issues and need some help. Uh, or even if they don't say they need help, it's obvious that they do. And there's no one to help them. Um, you know, so that's, I think, it's an unfortunate thing. You, you've allowed people to express their needs and to share their emotions. And then they're told, good job. Glad you're in touch with your needs. Now go sit in the corner and suffer alone because no one's going to help you. You know I mean? Yeah. It's, it's rather unfair. Um, I think it's something that's very solvable. It just takes some time and effort and money from, from the governments to say this needs to be treated like what it is, which is a, a medical condition, but it's just not being done. Um, because once again, you know, money and, it's cheaper and, and they think the politicians think it's cheaper to ignore it. Uh, but in the end, it costs more. Um, just like in all other medical issues, if you don't take care of them early, they cost more later. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever think that that's not a bug? It's a feature. It seems to me interesting that when we look at addiction, you know, isn't it interesting that sometimes, sometimes, you look at business, like Xerox, for example. They'll give you the printer for almost free. But you want some toner? Hey, the first one's free, but after that, you're going to buy it. You know what I mean? It's almost like this model of addiction has been commercialized. But when I see some of my friends that maybe I had a heroin addiction, now they're on Suboxone. It's like they just trade. They traded this street drug for this pharmaceutical, but you still got to take it. And you can. And the mentality that comes with it, too, like you can never touch another drug because you're a drug addict. It's almost like pulling them back into the world of addiction on some level. Yeah. I mean, actually in a little aside, you know, now there's some, you know, cannabis was always called the gateway drug, which has yep, been proven in multiple studies not to be the case, but now there's yeah. some research coming out suggesting that it's actually the gateway out of addiction. Wow. That's so awesome. What? Yeah. So, um, yeah. and not saying that if someone has a drug addiction, they should start, right. they should add cannabis to the mix. I mean, that should be done probably in conjunction with a therapist or someone, you know, someone else um, with some kind of expertise. But, you know, there is some research coming out suggesting that it's actually helping people get cleaner. Um, oh, that's brilliant. But, you know, addiction, it's such a complicated thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people or take, take the more common things that everyone knows, cigarettes and, and alcohol, some people drink too much uh, yeah. in college, and then later they can lead a healthy, have a healthy relationship with alcohol. Other people can't. Yeah. Uh, 
Some people are able to just smoke a few cigarettes a week or one or two a day and still be, uh, you know, which is still not great for you, but it's better than a pack a day, you know, and other people, yeah. they're going to smoke, they're going to smoke a pack or two a day. So um, it same goes with other drugs. I mean, there's not many recreational heroin users, but there are some. Yeah, totally. that makes sense to me, but you know, <laughs> but okay, you know um, they're they're all at the big spectrum for everything, and and same for yeah. drug addiction and and uh, people who use drugs. But certainly, um, any help that is, that can be found for people who are, you know, in the really dark corners of addiction, um, I mean, it's great that they, there's some help for them. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's it's so interesting to to get to hear that. Like my mind is racing. Like there's, I can't wait to start reading some of that stuff. As as cannabis is a gateway out of addiction, it makes so much sense. And like I, I know so many people that, you know, you look at the old school, the the Bill Wilson model of of AA and everyone smoking cigarettes. You know what I mean? Like it's just like you still got a drug in your hand. Why do you mean you can't do drugs? It's it's so crazy to me to think on a on a and I'm not trying to make light of it. Like I, I have nothing but huge respect for people that have made it through different programs and are able to keep their sobriety on a level. And I realize how important it is. I have lots of friends that have done it. I'm super proud of them. It's, um, it's just interesting to think our relationship with the word drug, you know, it's a weird thing to think about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, but, but just go back to what you were talking about. A minute yeah. ago. You know, the, the people who trade one addiction for another, the cigarettes, you know, they yeah. start smoking a pack or two a day when, when they're going through AA. You know, an AA or just addiction in general has a term for that. That's a dry drunk. You know, it's someone who is dry, who isn't drinking, but they still have all the same uh, uh, issues and, or mannerisms or behaviors that they had when they were drinking. They're just not drunk now. Um, and it comes from not really doing the work to understand where that addiction and, and those behaviors are coming from. Uh, which goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, where some of the psychedelics help people delve into into their inner inner being to figure out what is causing them to act so recklessly and destructively. Um, and once they people are able to do that work, usually they're able to move on a little bit easier. It doesn't yeah. mean they still struggle with wanting to have a drink or use or whatever. But it's a little bit easier when you understand where all your behaviors and triggers are coming from instead of just being powerless and saying, throwing your hands up in there and saying, why am I feeling this way? Um, yeah. So, so I think that's, that's, that's really important. Um, sorry. Now I forgot what you were asking. <laughs> Man, it's, I know it's brilliant. I, I love where you're going. I, I, and I, on some level, I think we are walking down the path of a more holistic approach to medicine. Right. It seems like that when you start talking about things being connected and behaviors and symptomatic issues and language, like I think you're starting to build out a, a better picture of really what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when I was in medical school a number of years ago, you know, there was already a lot of talk about mind and body interconnecting, mm -hmm. but it was um, still not, I would say, necessarily completely mainstream. And um, it depends on the, the physician you're talking to also, you know, a surgeon, he's going to cut and that's what he's there to do. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you're talking to, um, 
a doctor who specializes in arthritis, you know, they're going to be looking more at the clinical picture. Uh, but if you're talking to your family physician or GP, you know, that's where you're more likely to find someone who's going to say, yeah, mind, body, there is a connection. They're very important. It's important to look at both. Um, but, you know, in the U.S. and in Europe, the doctor doesn't have time to sit here with you in each visit for 15, 20, yeah. 30 minutes yeah. to discuss yeah. all the aspects of what's going on in your life and, uh, you know, what's happening in your relationship at home with your wife and your kids and your parents and your siblings and, you know, building this big picture to understand what's going on. I mean, patients don't even have time for that, really, for the time yeah. that it takes. So, um, I mean, it's good that medicine is becoming more open to the to the connection between mind and body, but there's just not time for it in the modern world. Or even if there is time, who's going to pay for it? Because the physician has to you know, make money so that they can pay their staff and pay, pay themselves a salary and, and put food on their own table. And insurance isn't going to pay anyone for an hour to sit there and talk about feelings, unfortunately. You know. Is it this, like, I have Kaiser and I go to Kaiser, like my doctor's on a timer, man. He's got like, what up, George? How's it going? Boom, 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 boom. You know, and I, and I can see this, I can see the love in his eyes. I'm like he wants to talk to me more. And like, so he'll, me and him will have a conversation and be like, ah, I gotta go, George. I love, you know, I love you. I gotta go. Is it the same? I, I don't thoroughly understand the whole medical model or anything like that. And I'm, I'm new to it. Is it the same in Europe as it is in America? In America, we hear, we have the greatest model ever, but I, I don't know. Is it different in Europe? What are some similarities and some differences that, that you um, are happening there? I mean, it's, it's very similar. So, you know, if you look at studies, many physicians in, in the U.S. are not happy with their careers yeah. and, yep. and wouldn't do it again, don't want their kids to do it, oh. don't want to do it themselves. And it's because of these time pressures and financial pressures, and they don't really get to do what they want to do, which is take the time to really spend time with their patients uh, and figure out what's going on. It's more about the conveyor belt. Um, and um, it's very similar in, in Europe. Um, definitely in Germany, I know I have a lot of friends who are physicians here, I know physicians in the UK and both, both countries is very, very similar and it's exact same complaints. Um, and so what's better here though is you really don't have the problem of, of massive numbers of people without insurance. Um, mm. and, and that makes a big difference. Um, you know, in the U.S., there's tens of millions of people without insurance who get zero benefit or zero help, just about, unless they happen to be lucky. You know, in Denver, they have Denver Health, which takes care of all the uninsured and underinsured people, but just within Denver proper. If you're on the road, wrong zip code or in the wrong zip code, you can't go to Denver Health. And then you're just out of luck. You know? And there are some other clinics and stuff that could try and fill in, but they don't have this, enough resources. So you know, in the US, that's the big problem, that you just don't have a, access for tens of millions of people. Um, but both sides of the pond, physicians aren't happy because they can't spend the time that they want with their patients. And then the patients aren't happy. You know, uh, It's just a, not the best system. And it's because yeah. you're squeezing, trying to squeeze every dollar out of the system. Yeah, it's hard to get blood from a rock. Right. <laughs> and then the U.S. is much worse, though. You know, I mean, the U.S., they could, the government could easily pay or the, the health system 
there's enough money in it to pay for everyone to have health care. But the problem in the U.S. is that you've got the insurance companies who pull out probably five to ten billion dollars a quarter wow. in profit out of the healthcare system. You don't have that as much in Europe. Of course, you've got insurance companies who are pulling out, pulling money out, but not to the extent that they are in, in the U.S. Um, and you know, when they've, when the uh, congr- congressional, uh, what's it called, the uh, congressional budget office, I think is what's called or whatever it's mm-hmm. called, looked at it. You know, they said, yeah, it'll cost trillions of dollars to have universal health care in the U.S. But what people ignored was the savings that it would actually pay for itself and be cheaper than what's currently going on in the U.S. in the long run. Um, and, you know, so people saw the first sentence but didn't read the rest of the last few, basically. Um, and it comes down to if you have universal government uh, health care coverage in the U.S., the insurance companies aren't pulling all the profit out and putting it in the pockets of a few investors and, and you know, their CEOs making $100 million a year or whatever they pull in, you know. Man, corruption. You know, when I heard a good quote that said something along the lines of when the instrument becomes institutionalized, it no, it loses its ability to cut. You know, and like it just it just makes so much sense. Like when you have this instrument that works, and then you turn it into an in- institution. You know, I get insurance, but geez, Louise, man! Like when you start digging, peeling back the layer, it's like what happened? But I don't know. It's what what brought you to? Maybe we can hear about your journey, man. You were in Denver. I know that much. And then now you're over here in Europe. Like what happened, man? What do you, you, did you go out there for cannabis? Did you go to Vietnam first or what, what's the story there? Yeah. So I mean, first I went to Vietnam. Um, so a friend was opening up a craft brewery there and wanted me to help with, with that process. And, and so I was kind of like, what the hell, why not? Sounds fun and interesting. Um, so I, I went there for, for about four years. Um, but then that was during, that was when COVID hit also. Mm-hmm. Um, Vietnam shut their borders at the beginning of COVID completely. Uh, so within the country, you, you had very little COVID and things were, you were pretty free within the country, but there was no one coming in. And, um, you know, so tourism went from millions of visitors to zero overnight, mm-hmm. um, which you know, put a big, it was a big issue for anyone involved in food and yeah. beverage and stuff. I mean, obviously. So um, uh, I decided at some point that it was time to go ahead and move on. My, my plan was never to stay there extremely long term. I was thinking a couple of years, turned into four years. Very happy with those four years. So not complaining that I was there longer than, than my original intention, which was also very vague anyway. So <laughs> it was very open ended. Um, but I've been coming to Berlin for since 1990, since the wall came down, and and we've um, always liked Berlin, and so I decided to move here and was looking at the kind of following what was happening with the cannabis industry yeah. here, and with having seen everything in Colorado, I thought it'd be interesting to explore this industry here a little bit more, um, and uh, actually first got involved with the cultivation project. And that's when I realized how there was a real need for um, a cannabis-specific jobs platform because mm-hmm. it was extremely difficult to find workers. 
um, who are interested in the cannabis space uh, or in the cannabis industry. So uh, that's why I came up with the idea for EU Canada Jobs and um, started working on that alongside as I was working on the cultivation project, which in the end um, didn't work out due to funding, but um, yeah, kept working on my EU Canada Jobs project. Yeah. That was my primary focus at that point. Um, and, and that's going well um, and definitely uh, getting a lot of good feedback from industry and individuals alike that uh, they're happy to see an, you know something like this that they can turn to uh, to help when they're looking for workers or when workers are looking for places to work. Um, so it's working out great. Yeah, we could tell us a little bit more about it. is it it's like a an indeed for people. With weed, exactly. uh, weed. <laughs> I forgot how the, that's the <laughs> wrong way you say it. Uh, and that's actually that'd be a good name for it. In weed, <laughs> indeed, yeah. would probably, indeed, probably wouldn't be very happy with that. But you know. yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's interesting so, though because there's tons of there's tons of people looking to break that that have a passion for it that have gone to school for it nowadays and understand cultivating and understand, you know, especially. It seems like Canada and a few spots in the U.S. are some pretty hot spots. How does it work, man? Maybe tell us all about it. How does it work? Yeah, so so we do two different things. We we have our jobs platform, which is like you said, exactly right. like Indeed. You go on and um, you can search through jobs. Companies can create a profile and start just posting jobs right away on their own, um, or they can contact us and we help them. Yeah. But so the jobs platform is like an Indeed for for weed, exactly. And then we also do do recruiting where like typical recruiting, you know, we go out and we help, uh, you know, a company comes to us, say we need a head of sales who speaks three languages and, yeah. and they'll be, you know, their, their home base will be here. And then we go through our candidate pool, see if we have anyone uh, in our candidate pool and also reach out to other potential candidates, um, you know, and find someone for that company. Um, you know, it helps the companies a lot because yeah. the jobs platform helps companies because now the candidates are coming who are interested in the cannabis industry. Um, and the other option is that candidate is just looking on Indeed for, let's say, a sales position and they see 10,000 sales jobs. They might not ever even see the cannabis sales job. Right. So, you know, even though the person is interested in the industry, they can't find it. The company is interested in this, in this individual, but they're lost in behind 10,000 other job posts for similar position. So really by having the industry specific job board, it really helps kind of com, uh, connect the people. Um, like the tech industry has been doing it for, for decades. You know, you have all these tech job boards. Now you have it for other things, for agriculture and things like that too, because it's just been shown time and time again that these industry or niche specific platforms really do help connect the right people with the right companies. Yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense. And especially, I think right now people are going to look back on these days with fond memories. I'm really hopeful that whether it is the sheer amount of money that's about to pour into the industry or it is the sheer volume of people that can be helped because of this industry I really think that we're on the precipice of, of changing the laws, whether it's interstate commerce, which I hear is is coming up soon, hopefully, and 
you know, once these, once the, the first dam begins to break, I really think you're going to see the stigma begin to evaporate and, and flood in there. So I think laying the groundwork right now is a great way, especially over in Europe, because you are like a, you're a conduit for people coming from different parts of the world. And like, Hey, yeah, I know this company. Here's how the laws are over there. You really do a lot of the streamlining to help bring people up to speed. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so Germany is uh, supposed to be passing their law today. You know, so um, like I said earlier, and other countries are most of the countries in Europe are having discussions, some further along than others. Um, but even, you know, just less than a year ago, France and Spain were saying we're not going to be looking at this. Now they're both looking at it, taking a serious look at it. Um, Portugal was kind of slow rolling it all along and now they're looking at it more closely. You know, so and there's a lot of other Czech Republic has been kind of right along with Germany and really trying to push the whole the full legalization. And now they've also stepped back a little bit when they saw the issues that Germany was having with the with the EU. Um, but you know, a lot of countries are, are looking at it in one fashion or another. Um, like you said, once the dam breaks, it looks like Germany's going to be that dam. Germany being the biggest economy in, in, in Europe, yeah. of course, that's going to be a big driver anyway. Um, but it's all the more reason why Germany is also being very careful about what, how they do it. Uh, first of all, Germany is always about, you know, uh, following the rules correctly, you know, and yeah. they yeah. don't want to do something that undermines the authority of the EU or the UN because they're big supporters of both of those, which, which is good. I agree with that. Um, yeah, so eventually the EU and UN rules are going to have to be changed, but to get those to be changed is very difficult because then, for instance, in the EU, I believe it's 27 states or countries, you know, they all have to agree or change these rules and you're always going to have holdouts, right? Uh, you know, especially some of the further Eastern countries who are more conservative, you know, uh, that, or because they want to use it as a political uh, maneuver, like Hungary's been doing with, right. uh, you know, uh, Sweden getting into the EU or, in, or into NATO and things like that. Um, you know, they use, some countries will use these things that everyone has an agreement on as political, you know, uh, maneuvering. So, you know, changing rules, the bigger rules, can be very difficult. But as you have medical cannabis and within the countries themselves, as things move along and the citizens start saying, we want this, eventually that groundswell of support is too much that the government can't ignore it anymore. They have to do something. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, when I look at, when I talk to some of the people in the world of cannabis in the United States, there, there are some issues with it. Like if some people, I remember not too long ago, there was this groundswell and, you know, people that were cultivating were making tons of money, but then the bottom kind of drops out of it. And then you could buy it on the street for less. And, you know, there's all this pressure happening that, that changes the game there. Are you seeing some of those? Does, does that the same game that happens in Europe? And maybe you could explain what the ground game is over there. Yeah, I mean, uh, right now it's all medical. So, right. and medical in Europe is handled much differently than in the U.S. You know, in the U.S., basically what you saw for medical was people would go get a bogus medical card from mm -hmm. somewhere um, and then they could walk into any dispensary. Uh, here, you end up with a real prescription, which has to be filled out, you know, every month or so 
for every couple of months. Then you have to go to a true pharmacy and pick it up. And so it's really treated exactly like a medication. Mm. Um, but in Germany, for at least, the insurance companies are also paying for it because of that. Um, yeah, so um, that that's a big difference. Um, and so far, European countries, much more so than a lot of the recent states in the U.S., are really looking at it from a fairly honest point of view, it seems to me. Um, you know, you don't have the politicians' brothers right. getting the first licenses. Like you <laughs> have these, yeah, there are Republican conservative states that have said we'll never allow cannabis. All of a sudden, they're all jumping on the bandwagon, passing laws. Yeah. Yet there's all kinds of shadiness on who gets these licenses going on. You know, yeah. and there's lawsuits in so many states because of all these very questionable uh, license, um, you know, um, disbursements, I guess you would say. You know, so um, I think it's being handled a lot more honestly here. Also, at least Germany has done some fact finding trips to the U.S. to look at what's happening, what's working, what isn't. Um, so far, they're not talking about doing massive special taxes on cannabis above and beyond, which is what's been killing the industry in, in both the U.S. and uh, Canada. It's one of the main problems, you know, that, um, like you said, competition is driving down the, the profits, which right. is normal in any industry. Yeah. That's fine. That's, that's normal. It's not a big deal, in my opinion. I mean, yeah. if you need to be efficient. If you can't be efficient, then, then, you, right. then you lose out. Um, but when you have to pay a 20, 30% tax on top of all other taxes, I mean, that wipes out any profit. I mean, that's impossible. What industry, other industry has ever been able to afford taxes like that? Yeah, you know, no one. I mean, maybe the oil industry could, but they get subsidies actually, you know? Right. I mean, uh, so they, they really could, but you know, they, they get money given to them. So, um, Germany and other countries here, from what I've seen, are not looking at doing those types of ridiculous taxes to, uh, yeah, so it's a money grab that doesn't, doesn't really serve the economy in the long run. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's, I wish people could, and, and I think what, what may be the saving grace is what we talked about earlier. It's the true healing power of it. Like when you start seeing people no longer plagued by by long-term pain or you see them break an opiate addiction, like this tends to be things that can transform the way society works. Like if enough people begin to heal from something, it's like it, it almost becomes the, the wave that breaks over the pier, if that makes sense. Like, okay, okay, look. This is ridiculous. Like, what are we doing here? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, er almost everyone knows someone who yep. has struggled with the addiction or had cancer or yep. chronic pain or mental health problems. You know, I mean, these yeah. are all things that are so common that, um, yeah, everyone knows someone. Um, and a lot of times, one of those that I just mentioned is probably within the uh, tighter family, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where I think you're seeing a lot of this um, uh, public support now is more and more people are being exposed to people who they personally know who benefited from cannabis. Yeah. 
you know, and I think the majority of support isn't because everyone thinks everyone should be running around smoking joints on every street corner. No, they're saying my grandmother had cancer and this was, and this helped her immensely in her last months. Or, you know, my friend has chronic pain from a, from a work injury or chronic or from a bad accident or whatever. And this helps him greatly. And he, he doesn't have to take opiates anymore. You know, I'm all for it. So these are the types of stories that uh, make it very personal for people, but also change people's minds overnight. You know, people can be 100% against it until that personal that personal uh, connection has benefited from it, and they see that it's not a bunch of stoners and drug drug addicts, but it's people that they consider good people who are being being benefited. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see our relationship with cannabis change. You know, and just in my lifetime, like. It was like it used to be. Used to be you'd buy a dime bag for ten bucks. My my uncle said you used to buy a dime bag for ten cents, but for my in my day it was ten bucks. You know, <laughs> and um, I guess that's inflation. But you know, you were you buy it from some dude in the back alley, or you buy it from Jimmy at the party, or whatever, man. You it, it was illegal, and and so you would take your your dime bag and you smoke it up with your friends in your Volkswagen van on the way to a dead concert or the laser <laughs> light show or something like that. But now. You can go and you can see the Terp Pro. You could turn that bottle around and be like, oh, look at this Terp profile right here. You know, and, and I, I know people that are working with companies like 23andMe, not 23andMe, but companies like that to do genetic testing to try to figure out, mm-hmm. hey, what's going on in here? And it just, it just seems the same way I could pick up a bottle of, of beer and look at the back and see the calories. Now, too, can I figure out, hey, it's not White Widow, it's this particular Terp profile. You know, it's cool to see this relationship changing on some level. Is that, that's happening worldwide, right? What do you think about this, this yeah. growing up sort of, of relationship change? Well, that's one of the big things, you know, happening in, in Europe. Uh, I'll, I'll use Germany as an example because I'm most familiar with it here, okay. of course. But, you know, Germany's government has said that the people in the government who are pushing the legalization have said, we want to do two things. We want to protect children and get rid of the black market um, and pr- protect uh, consumers in general also. But the two biggest points were getting rid of the black market and protecting children. The point being, you know, the black market, it's illegal whether they sell it to a 12 year old or a 20 year old or a 40 year old. Yeah. So they don't care who they're selling it to. So in order to protect the children, you have to get rid of the black market. Um, in order to get rid of the black market, prohibition doesn't work. So you have to legalize it. In the end, you know, that's the only option that you end up having, really. And so that's kind of the premise that they started from. But, you know, the side effect of that also is just protecting consumers in general. You know, if the 40 year old or 20 year old is going to be using cannabis anyway, they shouldn't have to buy it from Jimmy at the party or from the guy in the park who gets their weed from wherever. And it's covered in chemicals or not. Uh, who knows what it's laced with? Maybe it's, you know, now it's laced with fentanyl and people are ODing mm-hmm. from fentanyl. Yeah. They thought they were just smoking a joint, you know, and they're, yeah. and they're dying from a fentanyl overdose, yeah. uh, you know, which is crazy. Um, so, you know, that's the way you protect consumers by having a clean product. And it's yeah. only clean if it's a regulated market. And then the side effect, long term, not the long term, but a bigger side effect of that is then you end up with the products, like you said, where it doesn't just say 22% uh thc and three percent cbd it tells you the terpenes and everything else and really allows people to become educated consumers and then they can figure out what works for their particular needs and what doesn't you know um one person who's using it for anxiety 
is going to want something different from the person who's using it for their narcolepsy. You know, I mean, they're two yeah. opposite. You know, you don't, you're not going to, you wouldn't expect it to be the same medication, you know, for each. So um, that's where, that's a big side effect or benefit. Let's call it a benefit, not a side effect. Big benefit of the, of the regulated or legal market is that consumers get a clean product and can see exactly where they're getting and can make informed decisions. Yeah, I love that. It, and I, on some level, I think because because there are the, the effects can be different to different people. You know, in the U.S., we have that, this weird thing where you can like watch television and then see a drug commercial, and they're like, "You should ask your doctor about this magic pill." You know, and on some way, like they just take all the accountability and they take all the critical thinking out of the decision making and then hand it to people. You know, if you're going to get, if you, if you have, if you're able to self-diagnose yourself with like, you know what, I get really nervous when I'm with people and I go out in these places and I don't have a good time because I'm so worried about what people are thinking about me that I wear the right shirt. Is that girl smiling at me? Is that going to want to fight me? Your brain is just going ballistic and you know it. And all of a sudden you find a, a you can look at the back of this product and understand the TERP profile. Now, all of a sudden, you're kind of taking back your authority. Like, okay, this particular profile works good for me with my stuff here. And on some level, you know, I, I think that responsible use is a way for people to take back a little bit of their authority with a relationship with substances. You know, and I think it does that in a way. It's like, hey, here it is. You're an adult. It doesn't take that much to start looking it does take a little courage to self-experiment a little bit. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as you do it in a responsible way. I, I think it's a win-win, man. I, I hope more people will do that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways uh, to look at that. I mean, on, okay. on I agree with you to uh, to a certain degree, though. Okay. Because, you know, right now a lot of people self-medicate with alcohol, yes. the things yeah, that you're describing, uh, or other drugs. And, you know, certainly people like you also mentioned before self-medicate with with cannabis um, and giving them the tool, if that's what they're going to do, where they can see, read, and first of all, have the information that they can look up on the internet and say, oh, these terpenes I think would help me with the issue I have, whether it's anxiety or sleep or, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Um, and then they can actually try and experiment along those lines. But I mean, really, ideally, they would be able to go to uh, someone who's trained have some type of mental health or uh, medical training and speak with them and say, here are my issues. And right. then that person with more advanced training could then work with them to figure it out instead of them just going to the dispensary and talking to a bud tender who really knows nothing about mental health, you know, except for maybe their own issues and what helps them. But that's not really where good advice should be coming from. You know, so, I mean, I'm glad that the information is there now, but it's not, you know, it's not really the safest route either. But I mean, it's better than them just smoking random weed from, from the park. And sometimes it makes them feel better. Other times it makes them suicidal because they have no idea what they're getting. And each time it's, it's from a different place, you know? So, I mean, in that case, knowledge is definitely power. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, maybe there should be a uh, a craft bud place where if you want to buy this strain, you have to show me that you've read the Portable Young first. You know, 
<laughs> have you read Brave New World? Because you can only buy Brave New World read if you if you read the book. Oh, there's a yeah. quiz. <laughs> I would go to that place, man. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, I haven't seen it, but I wonder if there are people out there who are doing that. If, if they're mental health experts or, you know, who are uh, offering those types of services, you know. I have no idea. I mean, I'm not in the U.S. anymore. I haven't been for a number of years, so I wouldn't know because that's not something that would be that common of knowledge. But it seems like that would be a, like a little, yeah, you know, um, cottage industry that would slowly build up. Um, yeah. Also difficult from a, a medical legal point of view, too. Who knows? But yeah. Yeah, now we're talking like that. There could be some fascinating surveys that could take place, you know, that kind of straddle that line a little bit. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, on the on a similar note, here in Hawaii, like they've, you know, we we got a few licenses for people. If you know somebody, you know, like the brother, it's it's the same thing. The the politician's brother gets the license or whatever, but. On some level, a positive note that I've seen is that because the black market is so connected and they're so well polished, some of the people are like, look, man, time to bring you guys out of the shadows. You guys are the best people here. You thoroughly understand cultivating. You already have a network. Why don't we bring you guys up? You guys get a license. You know, and on some level, I think that's a positive thing, like legitimizing this area and kind of bringing these people up. Like, look, man, you're already a national business. Why not just do it in the light, you know? And on some level that, that, that can be a good effect, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I can see both sides of the, okay. of the coin a little bit. You know, I think a lot of times the government says no one who was involved in the um, illicit market is going to be allowed in the new, in the legal market because you are doing things illegally. I mean, mm. I get their point, but right. um I mean, I, the way I would look at it, it's like you said, you know, they've been, they, they know the industry. Um, yeah. I would say, you know, if you, if you can safely say that they were not involved in violent crime related right. to Right. I like that. You know, then, then let them get a license as long as they can show that they're going to do it legally from now on, you know, but, you know, most people who are growing cannabis are not evolved in violent crime, you know? So, but certainly some people who are higher or into bigger networks sure. or whatever are, you know, I, I mean, if people are involved in violent crime stuff, I don't think they should be allowed into the legal market personally. Yeah. Um, but I agree. I mean, give these people the opportunity to become legitimate, you know, and that's actually going to, that, that's a better way to get rid of the black market is yeah. to buy it out. Right. Basically. Right. I mean, if you tell all the black market people you can't become legitimate, well, what are they going to do? They're just going to keep doing the black market. They're not going to say, oh, I'm going to become a I'm going to become a teacher now or I'm going to become a cab driver now. I mean, no, they're just going to continue doing what they know, which is selling weed on the black market. You know, so um, to me, it's the best strategy, you know, Uh, incorporate them in. course some people will come in and replace them in the black market but of course um if you if you don't give them an opportunity to get out of the black market they're definitely staying yeah 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 it's interesting to think about how much 
innovation happens in that particular market, you know, and I, I'm not talking about, I think everybody listening here is, is against the idea of violent crimes or, you know, selling to, you know, selling into abuse and this kind of stuff like that. But there's a lot of innovation that happens with the guy that is been growing, you know, maybe he's a closet grower or something like that. And this guy's got this new strategy with soilless mediums. You know what I mean? Like that's the guy that, that might have some insight on about that might have the next new thing out there, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, all the, all the strains, the, the thousands of strains that are yeah. out there now, I mean, they were all created in the illicit market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where it all came from. So, um, you know, you can't discount the illicit market because otherwise there would be nothing around today at all. Um, yeah. So, and strains, the different strains is what's important, you know, to treat the different conditions and to try and reach the different, the different people who need it. Um, it's one of the things you're seeing a lot here in Europe is that a lot of companies are breeding uh, with their eye on specific conditions and are trying to find strains that match certain medical conditions and are actually doing medical studies to see what works and what doesn't. Um, so, so it's quite interesting to see yeah. that, see that happening, you know? Yeah. Are you familiar with any studies with, with THC and blood type? I think there's, I, I, I don't, I'm just spitballing here, but my personal opinion is there's something to do with blood type. Um, I've, I haven't seen any studies. I've heard something about that concept before. Really? Okay. I, I heard something about that before. Yes. Um, but I think it's probably not as much related to yeah. blood type as like you mentioned earlier, 23andMe uh, for yeah. genetic testing. So I used to actually be involved with some genetic testing companies mm. and what they started, what they developed a number of years ago was genetic tests where you could actually uh, do a genetic test to see what medications would be effective for you and which wouldn't. Mm. Um, one particular panel that was interesting was the one for antidepressants. Because for antidepressants, a lot of people, they have to try three or four or five different ones before they find one that works. And each one you're on for four to six months before you give up on. You're supposed to be on it for six months. So, I mean, imagine if it's going to take five five medications before you find the right one. That's two and a half years before you found yeah. medication that's going to work for you. And in that time, most people give up yeah. on, 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 that, on, the, on these medications. So, it's not very effective. So, this blood test would say, well, based on your genetics, these medications are more likely to work for you. These are not. Yeah. Um, and so the same as that works for all types of different medications. Um, it could also be applied to different uh, terpenes and things like that. Yeah. But first we'd have to understand more about the terpenes and how they work in the body. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there's there's that basic research that a lot of that is missing to, I think, to make that leap to where you can use genetics to figure out which strain would be good for what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's a great selling point if you can come up with the literature to back it up. You know, it's could be game changing. 
if you can, yeah. if you can figure out that that missing link you know well there's a lot of talk these days about the cannabinoid system and it's this system and that has been ignored for so long and nobody knows a whole lot about it but it, it too is mysterious in some ways like we don't really thoroughly understand how you know is it does it work with psychedelics or you know is, is it is it I don't know anything about it. I mean, maybe you could speak to this this mysterious system that seems to hold the key to a lot of problems. What's your take on it? Well, um, like you mentioned, you know, it was mysterious uh, for a long time, but now just in the last few years in particular, I mean, there's been research has been done on it for a very long time, uh, since probably the 70s, I think, 60s or 70s, when they first discovered it and we're really looking at it. But now in the last you know, 10, 15 years with uh, things changing in the U.S. on the state level, um, more and more research has been happening into, you know, this very basic science, but it's very complicated basic as far as getting the groundwork for understanding things. Um, and their science is being beginning to really understand a lot better and making new discoveries. Um, I don't remember what it was, but they just recently came out with a paper about some new discoveries in the uh, endocannabinoid system. Um, God, I can't remember what that was now off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, point being, you know, they're still making uh, basically new discoveries and understanding how what all is involved and how it all interacts. Um, like I said before, though, with terpenes and so many different substances or, or active and components in cannabis, how does that all interact is, in my mind, just, I think, a little bit too complicated for us to be able to really be able to, to, to explain precisely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to look at and it's, it's fun to imagine what the possibilities are. And I, sometimes I think that that's a big part of it is, is I forgot who said the quote, but life is only stranger than you imagine. It's stranger than you can imagine, you know, and yeah. <laughs> when I started thinking about the possibilities that we, we can learn and medicine and science and, you know, it's interesting. You know, I, I know over here in the U.S. that there was a wave of venture capital that kind of flowed into the world of cannabis for a while. Is that something that's flowing into the world of cannabis over there? Um, well, I mean, a few years ago, um, you probably noticed it uh, two to three years, two years ago when, you know, the U Ukraine was invaded and then that brought on uh, energy crisis in Europe and then inflation and, and that kind of the fear spread around the world and investment dried up around the world mm -hmm. in cannabis, but also in almost everything. Yeah. But that was also, you know, the, the North American cannabis markets have, have been having hard times for a number of years now, too. Uh, so I think all of that came together to um, kind of slow down the investments in Europe Um Plus, there, there is a lot of enthusiasm about things happening in Europe, and then things slowed down, especially in Germany. You know, Germany came out and said, we're going to do full legalization within yeah. two years and all these things. And that kept getting rolled back. And now, hopefully, in a few hours, we'll have the first yeah. law passed and, and be moving forward at a much more slow pace, but still moving forward. But um, 
now you're starting to see now that Germany is moving forward and also all these other countries are starting to move forward uh, you know, at, at different levels and different paces, but things are all, it's all moving forward slowly. Um, you're starting to see a lot more, more interest in investments in, in Europe again. Um, and it's in particular from coming from the U.S., um, from within Europe, but also yeah. from the U.S. I know several investment funds that are U.S.-based that are now looking at uh, investing heavily in, in Europe in the next year or two. So definitely, I think in the next couple of years, you're going to see a lot of investment here. Um, a lot of that depends on the laws that are changing. Uh, yeah. yep. Germany currently only allows three or four companies to cultivate within Germany. They're talking about opening that completely up uh, and allowing uh, anyone who can qualify for a license, you know, to to cultivate here, you know, which would bring in a ton of investment. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that even small changes in laws can bring big investments in because it opens up a lot of opportunity. Um, so, I, yeah, next few years, I think it will be very exciting in, in Europe with the laws changing, the investments coming in. Um, you know, and as things change, then people want more change, you know, yeah. and, uh, so you'll start to see more uh, citizens, but also companies and, and influential people pushing for change. So it'll be, it's going to be very interesting the next few years for sure. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I know that in Vietnam, you spoke a little bit about going over there and, and working on craft beers. I can't help but think about the echoes of prohibition from the past and how this thing was illegal, but then it was made legal. And then you, know, you fast forward and there's these craft beers and like on some, I can't help but see the symmetry with, with legal cannabis on some levels facing the prohibition now. But in my mind, I can think of 20 different people I know that would be perfect craft vendors and have their own brand and stuff like that. Is that, is that something that, that you think about from time to time or you see the echoes of that or what are the, is, is that a trend? Uh, What's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, yeah, you mentioned, you know, prohibition of alcohol in the U S I mean, yes. most of the major crime, crime families and crime syndicates in the U S came from prohibition. Hello, Kennedys. <laughs> yeah. But, or, you know, <laughs> and all these, you know, the old gangsters, yeah. you know, they, and you know, they were all just involved in, in alcohol and almost nothing then maybe loan sharking and yeah, stuff. Like sure. they weren't really do, selling drugs and not many drugs were around then anyway, but still they were, you know, they were mainly alcohol, you know, and they yep. became billionaires or multimillionaires back in the day. Yeah. Um, that started a lot of the crime families. Um, and then the craft beer you mentioned, you know, and you saw it already in the US that you had first a lot of big players and then you started seeing the craft or boutique cannabis growers coming up. And I think you'll see that happen. Um, and, and then you saw it also with whiskeys and vodkas yeah. are all craft yeah. now too. I think you're going to see that happen in Europe a lot faster. I think you'll see, you'll see a lot of craft um, cannabis. Uh, once there's recreational, I think you'll see a lot of craft cannabis sprout up pretty quickly. Um, no pun intended. Yeah. Sorry. Um, ah, well done. No, I, I think you will see that happen just because I think a lot of things follow the U.S. You, you know, you have craft beer here, you have for a while, but you're starting to see more craft uh, distilleries and things also. So I think the whole craft concept is just a concept that is going to follow a lot of industries anyway. Um, and I think you'll definitely see that here with the, with the cannabis, which is good because that allows 
people who with a passion for a good product and for doing something small, but it costs more, but it's a, it's a good, it's a better product, but it's more expensive, but you will find the people who can buy it. It's just not going to be for the mass market. You know, just like there are people who want the Mercedes or the Ferrari uh, and not just the, um, the Kia, I drive a Kia, but you know, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. with Kias. I have one, but yeah. you know, other people don't want a Kia. They only want something that's bigger and nicer. Um, and same, you know, and if they can afford it, that's great. Same with cannabis. You know, not everyone can afford the cannabis that costs twice as much, but some people can, and they'll gladly pay it to support that small grower, but also because they, they feel like it's a better product. That's a great point. Perceived value. And it's interesting to think how much of a, product it can be i you know i i was talking with a friend of mine an old school grower from california that moved to hawaii we got an interesting discussion about soilless mediums and mm -hmm. uh he's a he's a big fan my friend paul if you listen and i love you buddy uh we were talking about uh soilless mediums and he threw this giant wrench in the game he goes listen george anything that's not grown outdoors is dog shit man not growing if, if it's if it's a soilless medium it's garbage you know and i started thinking about that like man there should really be like a discussion about that like i could see a bunch of craft growers coming around us a topic like that and being just back and forth and hashing this stuff out and on some level when i asked him why i'm like what are you talking about and he's like listen man do you realize like everything that's grown indoors is done because of to make it safe and away from pesticides. But also what you're doing is you're taking it away from the very nutrients that brings out the full effect of that particular strain. And his, his, uh, his story that really sunk in for me was that as a guy from California who used to grow and have everything indoors, he would focus strictly on THC content and be like, okay, this is it. And when he finally moved up to Hawaii and bought this farm, he started hanging out with some guys out here and he would, he would do the weed out here and he'd be like, this is weak, but then it would hit his whole body. He goes, you know, he goes, it hit me like, yeah, like the THC is definitely not the content, but there's way more than the THC. My whole body is tingling <coughs> on this particular stuff. And so he was, he was, has this theory that, you know, the soil is part is a genuine huge part of the process to help people heal. Well, I know it's kind of controversial, kind of way out there, but what do you think about that as a particular debate topic on a future podcast for me? I mean, I, th I think it's interesting, but I have two points. I mean, I think okay. one is, I don't know if it helps you heal better, you know, but I agree. I mean, I think every input into that plant is going to contribute to yeah that final flower, right? You know? um, and certainly if you're growing at a certain elevation with certain yeah. air and certain soil, yeah. that's going to be unique compared to growing somewhere else. You know, I mean, compared to grapes, certain grapes, there you go. Yes. Wines yeah. are known and right. supposedly wine connoisseurs can taste where these grapes come from based on, yeah. you know, what's in that soil, the, uh, the metals and the nutrients and the whatever's, you know, in the microbes, everything that's specific to that area. So I think, you know, certainly that's going to have a big effect on that final product. Yeah. But if you look at like, once again, using Germany as an example, in Germany, you have to basically grow currently for medical cannabis indoors. Right. Um, 
and ideally hydroponically because when you in germany let's say you bring a product to market let's say it's 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 uh, call it white widow with 22 percent thc mm-hmm. then that's going to be registered as white widow 22 percent after that product is registered which takes a while and is a process yeah. now it's legal but every subsequent time every subsequent batch that comes into the market of that with that name has to be within 10% THC value of that original one. Wow. So, so let's let's make it easier. Call it, you know, with a yeah. white widow 20%. That means all batches forevermore have to be between 18 and 22.2%. Wow. You can't you can't you can't map you can't get that growing outdoors. Sometimes you have more rain, sometimes more sun, sometimes this, sometimes that your plants, diff- your batch is different each time. It's different from the top of the plant to the bottom of the plant, the THC level and everything else. And from one side of your, your plant of your uh, um, grow to the other side. So in order to meet those strict guidelines or not guidelines, requirements for the German market, for the medical market currently, you pretty much have to grow indoors hydroponically with, sub- with artificial light and so on to where you can really control all the factors to get get that close. Um, I'm sure there's going to be growers out there who disagree, and right. that's fine. I mean, I'm, I'm not a grower. I'm, right. To be proven wrong, but my understanding is that in order to guarantee you can get that close, you need to really do it under extremely controlled uh, circumstances or conditions. And the thing is, if you if that batch doesn't meet your requirements, you can't just turn around and do something else with it. It has to be destroyed. So there goes your whole batch, three months of work, three, four months of work, all on the trash. I mean, you know, that's that's not a sustainable business model to just grow batch after batch outdoors and pray that it's going to always be the same because it's not going to be, you know. But that's where hopefully recreational market will be different and have different tolerances because why, why, why should it have to be that close? you know, in a recreational market, it should just match what's on your label. And each time you print a new label based on your most recent COA, and that should be yeah. fine. Hopefully. Uh, but for a medical market, which I can understand, it's supposed to be a medication. It should be very close to the same each time. So you get the same effect. Um, but so for the medical market here, you can't just grow outdoors and, and, you know, but that's yeah. where the craft market and recreational market comes in. Man, it's so intricate. You know, we almost need another classification. When it, it, you know, I don't know any. In some ways, it's almost like the different difference between when you try to get it like that high. It's almost like the difference between chewing coca leaves and doing cocaine. Like, well, you know, why, why do you need it that high? Like, gee, just take it easy. It doesn't happen like that in nature. Like, why do you need it that high? Like, it, it just it seems to me on some level. And you know, you know who you should talk to? You should talk to, I'll hook you up with this guy, Sebastian Marincolo. The guy's a genius. And he, he's recently wrote this book called um, Elevated, Cannabis as a Tool for Mind Enhancement. And him and I were having a conversation not too long ago where he actually made the parallel between different types of cannabis and grapes. And he went on this long, really informative uh, thought storm where – 
he was saying like, you know, so many people, George, like you wouldn't keep a bottle of wine out on your table in the sun for like a month and then drink it. It would be bad. It's going to, you know, it's not going to be right. It's not going to do the same thing for you. Like there's a whole thing that's happened with the relationship of it. And he goes, so many people do that with cannabis. They just leave it out and like expect it to still be good. And he mm-hmm. goes, he goes, in his opinion, like that's what leads to a little bit of like the, the, the greening out or the psychosis type elements of poor thoughts is like, yeah, because you, you, you got the wrong stuff. You let your stuff go bad, you know, and, and we just don't know enough when it comes to like super high content. Like maybe we're making stuff, maybe something that high is, is the wrong amount to make you work with anxiety or something like that. But it's an interesting concept, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Uh, the high, I mean, that's what the market in the U.S. has pushed it, right. and you're yep. you're seeing it in, in Germany, in Europe also, is that the consumers want higher, higher THC. Um, I think part of it is, you know, the consumer thinks, well, if I'm paying 20, yeah. 20 euros for a gram, I want as much THC out of it as I can, as I can get it. Kind of like, you know, when you're in high school and you're drinking and you want the high, high alcohol content, you know. Um, so it, it, but it, in the end, it doesn't really work that way. Yeah. You know? No, uh, not at all. I mean, if you're just trying to get high as hell, then yeah, then that's the way it works. But if you're trying to take care of your pain or your mental health issues or whatever it is, high THC does not necessarily equal better. And there have been studies that have shown that, yeah. uh, that actually a more balanced CBD to THC profile is better for most conditions. Um, but that most consumers don't don't realize that, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of education that needs to be done uh, for consumers, for uh, people in the industry, for physicians, for 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 everyone. Yeah. You know, for politicians, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know I know in Canada, like there's certain laws about advertising because you can get into the the, you know, it's like putting candy at eye level for kids you know what i mean like somehow they can do that but you're not allowed to advertise for certain things you know it's it's so maddening but you know when when the the advertising for medical marijuana is done by snoop dogg in a rap song that just talks about tearing it back so much like it's the wrong message man like it's the wrong message it should definitely be and i i think that people I think there's a real opportunity here for people that are bringing products to market to work hand in hand with the, the, the science community and the medical community. Like, listen, the model of us trying to hit this high THC count is a problem. We should find other markers to do that because, you know, in some ways you're weeding out the people you're right. Like not everyone has the resources to grow year round without pesticide, without any of these things, like they exclude so many people. It's almost like that high THC content is a barrier for entry. And that Mm -hmm. allows only certain people to play the game, but they're playing a false game because that's not even the effects that you want. Like it's so much better to have these different levels. And I think that would open it up to so much more people, but I, I know it's complicated and it's intricate, but it's, Man, I, I think there's an opportunity for people listening to this. Like, there's a real opportunity 
to craft a better message that will benefit everybody on some level. Is that, don't you think there is, or am I just yeah, crazy? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's why I was just saying that about the education part. Yeah. You know? and that comes down to, by education, you know, that sounds almost too um, uh, school oriented, but, you know, by education, just getting the information yeah. and knowledge out to people. You yes. know, it doesn't need, doesn't mean that everyone needs to go and sit for an hour long uh, course five days a week for a month, but right. you know, it can be uh, as simple as pamphlets at, at the dispensaries in the U S which, you know, give you some information about uh, why T THC level is not the only thing to look at, you know, yeah. um, you know, having bud tenders, uh, you know, for whatever courses are required for them in different States you know, have part of that being that they discuss with their customers that they should look at things like terpenes and and CBD and the other lesser cannabinoids uh, and not just THC level, you know, and that um, you can have a much better experience. Even if you are just trying to get high recreationally, you can have a better experience with a lower THC, but a better terpene profile. Um, then, you know, then go for the 25 percenter that makes you just want to curl up and die potentially, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's fascinating to think about. Yeah. Dr. I'm, I love our conversation, man. This has been really, really fun. Yeah, and I really good. enjoy getting to, to bounce ideas off people and have a conversation with about things I'm passionate about, especially with what you got going on over there with e what what's the name of the company get eu can of jobs eu can of jobs yeah you can of jobs yeah. you know maybe maybe, we, maybe before we land the plane maybe we could shift back into that a little bit like I, I i want people to not only understand exactly how to get involved with you over there or, or if they if they're interested about it but like I want people to see that this is exactly what we're talking about. When we talk about education, not only are we talking about maybe the high THC count is important, but maybe this whole industry popping up, you know, is, is a way adults and, and people that are interested in it now, or maybe there's a guy that really knows how to grow. Like, is it, what is the appetite over there for growth? I mean, can, if there's somebody interested in Hawaii or something like that, do they have a good chance at like, getting hired on at a job over there or what is there a qualification process? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, right now there's um, a lot of still up in the air as far as, um, you know, what's going to be coming down the road, but right. You know, currently there's already, you know, at least 1500 companies uh, in, in cross Europe or probably double that wow. um, who are involved, directly involved in the industry. Um, and you've got growers, you know, but growers are, uh, Cultivation companies are just a small part of that. You know, right. Distributors and, and all these other companies yeah. uh, are and, and processors, extractors, and you know everything that goes along with it is involved. Yeah. So um, there's all types of jobs. The the main the bit, three biggest job categories currently are sales, marketing, and IT positions. Just like in every industry, yeah. You know? um, growers there there are occasionally people looking for growers. Um, and we've talked to a lot of people who are growers who, who would like to come over. Um, so, you know, there's opportunities for, for every single category or type of job, I would say. Um, as far as people coming from the U.S., Canada, other places, it's happening on a regular basis. You know, there's, yeah. there's um, value in people having experience 
in the industry. Obviously, a grower has to have can. Of course, if you're a head grower, you have to have cannabis experience. But even other types of people, sales in particular, uh, even if sales are different in the U.S. and Canada, uh, it's still uh, that cannabis knowledge is is, is very valuable. Um, but you don't have to have cannabis knowledge. It's a new, yeah. relatively new industry in Europe. Um, I mean, it's been legal for seven years in Germany now almost, you know, and some other countries about as long also, uh, but very small and growing. So um, companies don't expect that everyone who comes in has cannabis background. Um, yeah, but of course, it's, it's nice when they do. So um, getting into Europe is not always the easiest uh, for a work visa, um, but coming from North America, it's relatively easy um at least to come and visit um and then if you are someone with um a higher degree or a spe special skill set then companies if they want they can apply for visas for you and typically get them um you know they have to be able to demonstrate why or explain why this person coming from outside of europe deserves a job instead of someone within europe uh, but like i said higher degrees and, and specialization usually, you know, is a good enough argument. Um, so anyone who's in North America, who's interested in looking, you know, if they can reach out to us and we can, yeah. you know, help them look um, and probably can help them find something. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know that uh, here in the U S like sometimes there's conventions or they just had the big psychedelic, uh, event in Denver. Is, is there something like that for cannabis in Europe? Are there, are there, is there like a circuit where people are kind of coming around and, and, and building momentum and stuff like that? Yeah, actually um, the three biggest are uh, the biggest one is Spanibus, which is in Barcelona. Okay. And that's coming up uh, in a few weeks here. It's in mid March and we'll be there with a the booth. Um, nice. And they have about 70,000 visitors and they yeah. have been going on for, it's like 20 years or something, 20, 25 years. It's huge. I mean, 70,000 people, that's as big as Burning Man, you know? Um, so that is, um, yeah, that's, that's a really big one. Um, yeah. And then in um, June is Mary Jane in Berlin, and they expect about 50,000 visitors this year. Um, and then CannaFest is the other the other really big one, that's also, I think, around 50,000 people. Wow. And that's in Prague uh, towards the end of the year, I think in, I think early November, if I remember correctly. So those are the three biggest. But you've got tons of smaller events. Um, some are more geared to hemp. Uh, some are more towards CBD. Um, but there's always some crossover between those anyway. And then you have also have a lot of business-to-business -business events, uh, which are also tend to be smaller. But... You know, especially now, kind of now is when event season, conference season starts to kick off again. And there's stuff, you know, a couple of events every month, if not more, every month. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It, it, you know, if, if people are interested in, in cannabis and whether you're working in North America, South America, there'll probably, probably be some pretty great advice to go over there and start checking out some of these events or if they're interested in finding a job through, through EU Canada, you know, it would be a great place to come over and shake your hand and uh, yeah, look absolutely. you in the eye. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. 
And, you know, I mean, Barcelona is a wonderful city. It doesn't hurt. You know, it's not a bad excuse, bad excuse to go visit Barcelona. Maybe, yeah. uh, you know, look at Spain a little bit more or go down to Lisbon where there's a lot of stuff happening there for cultivation or, you know, wherever else you want Europe. But Barcelona is great. It's right on the water. And what a, you know, it's a great event. Or Berlin is an amazing city. It's my favorite city on the planet. Uh, you know, come here and check out the city and, spend a few days at, at, at Mary Jane. It's also, you know, <laughs> or Prague with kind of Canifest. I mean, Prague's also an amazing city. You know? So you can't go wrong at any of these events. Beautiful city, nice trip to Europe and get a good event in and probably make some really good connections. What if somebody was interested in, in talking to you directly or they're like, hey, man, I want to check out this EU Canada thing over here. I got a company. I got I need some people that I want to list over there. How do they get a hold of you, man? Are you do you can people reach out to you and you'll know, talk to them or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, probably the easiest way is just to find us on LinkedIn um, and just look for EU Canada jobs on LinkedIn or they can look for me directly, Andy Mansfeld, uh, with the two ends. Um, so. Yeah, people are free to reach out to me directly or to the company on LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, Andy, this has been awesome. I really enjoy it. Uh, we got to have you come back. It would be cool to um, maybe we, if you upcoming, we can do some live events together, have more people come in, have a bit more of a discussion. And it's just a cool topic. And I enjoy talking about it. I know you're passionate about it. So in the yeah. future, we can have some more stuff. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Yeah, definitely. All right. So one okay. more time before I let you go, um, EU Canada, maybe you could just give one more name of the, the, the shout out the website, the name and where people can find you one more time before I let you go. Okay. Yeah. So it's EU Canada jobs and you can find us on LinkedIn, EU Canada jobs, uh, or also you can look for me directly. And the website is just www.eucanajobs.com. And also you can also just Google EU Canada jobs, um, you'll find us or even just Google cannabis jobs in Europe. And we usually pop up as at the top of the search results for that, for just a generic search also. Perfect. And go down to the show notes because all the links will be down there as well. Well, hang on briefly afterwards. I'll talk to you just briefly afterwards, but okay. everybody, I hope you have a beautiful weekend. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Shout out to my friend Griggs and everybody else who uh, was talking out there, Paul Griggs, Anthony, everybody. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I hope you have a beautiful day. That's all we got. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances... I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, 
then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.